The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. I think one of the things we struggle with as parents, particularly as younger parents, is the children tend to like a certain type of food. You know, they really like, just like Chick-fil-A. I just want to go to McDonald's. You know, I want, this, they want the same thing like every week. And uh, we know as parents that you actually need a, a well-nutritious uh, diet. You need to eat your vegetables. You know, you need to eat it all and you need to take it all in. And, and that's what I would say the same with the Word of God. And the reason that we at our church preach expository sermons, meaning we don't just do topical sermons that would enable us to kind of pick the things that we like and give you the nice Chick-fil-A every Sunday, but actually working through a book, like we're going to the book of Mark and we're in the middle of uh, chapter 9, if you want to turn there, is we feel like long-term that's going to have more sustenance and more nutrition for our spiritual growth by working through the harder passages, the ones that we might be inclined to say, well, that's a tough passage. This one's, you know, there's going to be some tougher ones coming, and uh, just give fair warning. Um, but this uh, text here is, as they're coming down from the mountain, uh, after the transfiguration, you've got three disciples that went up with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, and then you've got nine that are down below. And this is the scene now as they come down from the mountain, picking up at Mark 9, beginning at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing at them. Immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into the fire and into, wire, into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They pray for us. Father, as we consider this portion of your word, I pray that it would also consider us and that your word would read our hearts. And we ask that you would increase our faith 
and you, Jesus, and your power and your goodness. We pray that, Lord, you would speak now, Holy Spirit, that we might hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. We ask in your name. Amen. The so-called trinity of Italian Renaissance painters, there's three. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, and Raphael. And I, we have a picture that we're going to show you of this great painting that Raphael did. And uh, he actually died before he completely uh, finished this in 1520. And apparently these guys were contemporaries with each other. Leonardo was a little bit older, but they had met each other and uh, admired their work. It was kind of a love-hate relationship, some jealousy. But this classic of Raphael kind of gives you the two worlds. Uh, as you can see, we have the transfiguration and the upper story, the upper picture. You have Jesus being transfigured. He's conversing there with Moses and Elijah. You have the disciples there on the ground. And that's the upper picture, okay? It's based on this text. And then the lower story is there's a, there's a boy that you're having a hard time seeing it, but he's now, his mouth is now opened. He's been miraculously healed and um, the disciples are trying to cast it out and to no avail, but Jesus comes and, and is able to, to fix it. So you kind of have this picture of an upper story and a lower story. And uh, I think the idea here, I mean, there's been, obviously, I, I, I haven't talked to Raphael to know what he was exactly intending, but it seems to be like everything is great up above, but down below there's still chaos and frustration and suffering in this world, and we need Jesus to break in. He's the only one who can come and fix it. And we would call that today, we would call it the already not yet tension. You know, the already is you look above and everything's great and glory, but down below there's, there's difficulties. And the sad thing and with Raphael is that he died before he finished this, and most people think he actually died on his birthday. There's two different particular dates, they're not sure which is his birthday, but he died on one of them, and he was in this very, uh, uh, well, he was in a bad relationship with a mistress, and he never married, and he, he didn't end well, okay, and that, it was after a, a lot of uh, messing around with this woman that he actually got sick and died, so it was really, it's kind of a sad story for the end of Raphael. Um, but you can leave that up, actually, if you want. If we come back to some scriptures, maybe. But it's kind of good to get the context here that Jesus has been transfigured. His glory is seen by Peter, James, and John. And now they're coming down from the mountain. And for us, there's often that mountaintop experience. You have this, you know, you go on the women's retreat. You're going to have this great spiritual high. And then you come back to reality of what life is, is like. And they come back down the mountain. And like Moses, when he came down from the mountain, how did it go for him? I mean, he sees Aaron, his brother, and Aaron is saying, you know, out came this golden calf. Like, I, he didn't have anything to do with it. You know, it just, it, I just threw this stuff in the fire, and out came this calf. Um, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, he's entering into this world of, like, he finds disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples, I'm quoting G. Campbell Morgan, and it says, he silenced the scribes, he comforted the father, he healed the boy, and he instructed the disciples. So what we're going to look at in this story are five C's. So we're going to look at the crisis, 
verses 14 to 22. Then we'll look at the chastisement and the conditional promise is verse 23. The confession of faith of the Father, verse 24. The command and its consequences, 25 to 27. And then lastly, the conclusion. So first, the chaos and the crisis. As you're reading this text in verse 14, where they're coming down and they see a great crowd is just gathering around. And the disciples, and then we see that there's an argument between the disciples, these nine disciples, and the scribes. We're not told what they're arguing about. We've got to keep reading. And we get to verse 15 and we see this crowd. And in verse 15 it says, uh, they're all amazed when they see, it says, when they saw him, they are greatly amazed. And once again, the text doesn't tell us. What are they amazed about? I mean, there's been some wild speculations that Jesus is glowing like Moses was, or maybe, you know, something. We don't know what they're amazed about when they saw Jesus. Maybe they're just happy that he showed up on the scene. We're not told. But Jesus wants to know what are you arguing about, okay? And it says they come running up to him. And you, you know when you come home from something and the kids all come running up to you or people come running to you at your job, is that usually a good indicator or a bad indicator? Usually they're not running to tell you good news. I mean, sometimes, but usually you're kind of holding your breath and uh, you're like, okay, what is going on? I mean, all these people are running to Jesus. They run up to him and they, they tell him, you know, and it says somebody speaks up from the crowd. So this crowd is gathered, and then we realize the, the voice coming from the crowd is the Father. Because, teacher, I brought my son to you. And then he describes him. He has a spirit that makes him mute. He's able to speak, but then when the demon takes over, it takes away his voice. He can't speak. It seizes him. It throws him on the ground. He foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I've asked your disciples for help to cast it out, and a key point here, they were not able, okay? They didn't have the strength uh, to, they couldn't do this. It was greater than them. And so, you know, it's debated that the Jewish exorcist had a way that they could manipulate and get demons out of people. And the key was to get them to, for the uh, the demon to name itself. And if they could get its name, then they could drive it out. So there's a lot of speculation that the argument that's going on between the scribes and the disciples is we have a problem and the scribes are thinking, we well, just got to get this thing to name the demon. And once you name the demon, then you can drive it out. And the disciples are saying, but it, it won't speak. It won't speak to us. We can't drive it out. And, you know, you can see all this confusion that could potentially be happening in this text between the scribes and the disciples. But they're not able to drive it out. And Jesus' response to both the scribes and to his disciples is he refers to them as a faithless generation. And you're, you're really kind of getting the language of the Psalms here. You're getting a couple how longs. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's a lament. Jesus is lamenting the lack of faith in the scribes and the disciples. And so he's, he sees the issue here with this uh, boy who needs a demon driven out as an issue of faith needs to, being, needs to be exercised. And so they bring the, and he says, bring the boy to me. So they bring the boy to Jesus. 
and immediately the spirit saw him, okay? So if you think this was just like the case of epilepsy or something, I mean, it's clear, spirit, spirit, unclean spirit, and as soon as it sees Jesus, then it convulses the boy, he falls on the ground and rolls about, foaming at the mouth. I mean, there's something spiritual going on here. This is much more than, than a case of epilepsy. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And he tells him how it's been casting him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. I think most, some of you are probably familiar with the song we sing in church. Um, probably should have, I should have suggested it this week, but it's Come Ye Sinners, and we sing a lot. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. Then the chorus is, he is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. Now what we see in this text is that if you are willing is different than if you are able. Because the leper, and one of the very first miracles that Jesus does, is the leper comes to Jesus and approaches him and says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus say? I am willing, be clean. So if you are willing is an expression of faith. But if you can do anything, if you are able to do anything, if you have the dunamis, that's this Greek word which we, you know, we get our English word dynamite. Trust me, they didn't know what dynamite was back then, okay? So don't just do a one-to-one -one equivalent there, okay? But that's the word there. If they, and, and, and so the father's saying, if you are able, if you have the power to do anything, have compassion and help us. But that actually has a ring of unbelief to it, doesn't it? It's kind of like when you, when you call and you get, all, you get caught in the automated prompts for a long time and you're just trying to reach the customer service department, but you got to go through all the prompts and you press one, then you press two, then you press one, then you're on hold and then you get the music, the elevator music, and after 10 minutes, you finally get somebody that picks up. And you and your, you know, and your frustration, you say, if there's anything you can do to help me, can you please help me? You know, as you begin to lay out your problem, but you're, at this point, you're kind of like pretty, you know, at least if you're like me, I'm usually not the, the, the poster child for patience at that point. But that has, tends to have a ring of like unbelief, right? When you say, well, if, if you're able to do anything. And so Jesus is calling that out. And he's calling it out to us this morning. Are we saying to God, well, if you can do anything, if you're able, are you able to help? And the promise that we sing in the song is, no, he is willing. He is able, he is able, he's willing. Doubt no more. He is. And so Jesus calls this out, and there's a chastisement that comes with a conditional promise. Jesus says, if you can, like, if you're able. What, what Jesus is saying is, listen, your ability to believe is much more important than my ability to heal because I can do that. But the question is, is do you believe? So really, he's flipping it on that, on back to the Father and saying, the issue is on you, you need to believe. And then he gives this conditional promise. The promise is all things are possible. Do you believe it? 
because it's a conditional promise. All things are possible to him who believes. So your belief is more important than his ability. That's what Jesus is communicating to this father. And so then we have this beautiful confession of faith. And this confession of faith is, I believe, help my unbelief. And what's beautiful about it is it's an honest confession because there's, it's mixed with contrition. It's a confession of, I believe, there's a confession, but there's a contrition. You see, the, the, the scriptures speak of, of faith in so many different ways, does it not? Like, increase our faith. And some are, are described as shipwrecked in faith, and others are full of faith. And, and, you know, you have this idea of faith the size of a mustard seed. You have, you have a pretty big continuum of how faith is described. But the reality is this. It's much better to have a weak faith in a strong Savior than little faith in a big pseudo-Savior. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. Better to have weak faith in a strong Savior, little faith in a big Savior, than to have strong faith in a weak pseudo-Savior or in an idol. Because you could be trusting in something, and it could be a house of cards. Like, you know, think about it. 30 years ago, and really up to about 15 years ago, there was, this, there was an investor that pretty much everybody trusted. He was the trusted name on Wall Street. He gave to charity. He helped with the Special Olympics. He helped get the NASDAQ off the ground. He worked with the SEC to regulate businesses. He spoke in front of Congress. He helped the Securities Exchange Commission. He ran his business on this beautiful 19th floor of this beautiful lipstick building in Manhattan, known affectionately as the Lipstick Building. And people from all over the world invested millions and billions of dollars in him. Why? Because there was no risk. There's no risk. This investor always made 1% to 2% a month, steady like a rock. Poof, 45-degree angle. You're going to get your 9% a year, guaranteed. Everybody loved the results. Everybody trusted him because numbers don't lie, right? I mean, we're building, and, but there was one guy. There's one guy who wasn't convinced. His name was Harry Maricopoulos. And Harry was brought in to say, we got to compete. We got to compete with this guy because everybody's investing in him, and I want you to match what he's doing. And so they show him the numbers. He looked at the numbers for four minutes. And in four minutes, he said, it's a bunch of bull, and I won't give you the rest of what he said. And his company said, well, we want you to duplicate what he's doing. Have you figured out who this person is yet? We're talking about this trusted guy named Bernie Madoff that everybody trusted. And you need to compete with Bernie. And so this guy comes up, has to try to come up with a formula. So he looks at the numbers for a few hours, and he starts charting where the numbers are being listed. And he realizes what's being recorded, the numbers that are being shown to me, are not following Wall Street at all. They're not following the stock market. 6% of the time is what he's recording actually following the market. 94% of the time, it's not. And so he writes the SEC, 
that you need to investigate this guy. And he, and he keeps doing this several times. But Harry Markopoulos is the first one to start blowing the whistle that he's looking at the facts and he's coming to a different conclusion that everybody's trusting. No, we can do this. It's going to work. But he's suspicious. And what he writes is three, three things to the, to the Securities Exchange Commission. Either he's incredibly lucky and, and I'm wasting my time and your time. Or two, these numbers are really happening, but he's cheating and he's getting some serious front end. He's getting some serious insider trading. Or three, the whole thing is a Ponzi scheme. And as he starts to write the SEC more and more, this is all the way back in 2000, this thing doesn't bust till 2008. But by 2005, he, he writes them 27 reasons to prove this is a total Ponzi scheme because nobody's doing business with him. Nobody on the other end is making the investments. Here Bernie Madoff is taking your money and it's being invested nowhere. Nowhere. It goes into a bank. There's never any investments. And as I watch this thing about Bernie, I'm going somewhere with this. Bernie trusted in something. He trusted in an idol, his trust with himself. What happened early in life for Bernie was he lost some money early on as an investor, and he lost $30,000. And he didn't have the guts to go back to these people and admit that he was wrong with their investments and that they had lost $30,000. So he borrowed the money where he could get the money from family, and he takes the money and he lies about it and he makes these people think that they had made a good investment so that they would think good of Bernie because Bernie's love and life was he loved his, he loved people and he didn't want to let people down. He didn't want to give bad news and so he, he, he feared man and, he, and so he had to make an essential decision. Can I live with being a failure or live with being a liar? And he decided, I can put my head down at night and be a liar, but I will not be a failure. And so he decided to be a liar. And so then he just starts, starts to lie. Because that way I don't have to give anybody bad news. I can always give them good news. And they will always like me, always love me. He lived for approval. He lived for approval. How's that approval idol doing for him now? There isn't anybody more hated on the whole planet, hardly, even his own sons and one who took his life and his own wife, when he finds out, she, he tells his wife, it's all a Ponzi scheme. And she has one question. Her first question is, what's a Ponzi scheme? Uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, everybody, I mean, she, by the end of the story, she's on the street. She's living out of her car. And there's this one guy named Thierry, big French investor, and, he put, he's, and here's what happens is, the reason he trusted Bernie is this. When Harry and this other guy were trying to say, look, you need to be looking into this. This is what he said. Let me put it to you like this way, Frank. I have all of my money in it. I have most of my family's money in it. I have every private banker that I have groomed as a relationship in Europe in it. And I probably have half the royalty of Europe in it. I have no way out. If I'm wrong, and if you and, and Harry are correct, and I'm wrong, I'm a dead man. And he literally was a dead man. When the house of cards came down, Thoreau took his life, sadly. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. 
is that you, it's all a house of cards, but you're putting your faith in something, but it's not Jesus. It could be the idol of your work. It could be pleasing people. It could be even be family, but it's something other than Jesus, your career, whatever it is, your intelligence, your looks. You think, this is, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. Well, it can work for a while. It worked for Bernie for some years, but when it all came down, it came down with a big crash. This man, this father, had more faith in Jesus than he did in his unbelief. He did confess, Lord, I believe. And so now help my unbelief. Get rid of this other attachments to where I, we have doubts. It's an honest confession, and it's one that's full of contrition. You think about it for ourselves. I think if we're, if we're honest, a lot of times we want to do both. We want to trust in Jesus, but we also want to trust in self. It's kind of like, think about it, like if you're... you're uh, in quicksand, and you're, you're in quicksand, and you're starting to slowly sink, and these two ropes come down to you. And the one rope is self-reliance, and the other rope is Jesus saves. And you think to yourself, great, I'll put one hand on one rope and one on the other. I'll pull myself up, and I'll trust in Jesus, and I'll come up out of this quicksand, and I'll be fine with life. But you discover when you grab hold of this rope that each is actually has a force to it. The one rope is actually going down and the one rope's actually going up. And all of a sudden you feel like now your arms are beginning to pop out of your sockets because one's going down, one's going up. I've got to do two hands on one rope. And maybe that's where you're at this morning as you're trying to trust in yourself and your abilities. But then there's this other rope that's actually going up and it actually saves, and you've got to put both hands on the Jesus rope, and it will actually deliver you. But you can't hold on to both. You see, what Jesus is teaching here in this passage is this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. The disciples have been grabbing onto both ropes. We got Jesus, but we got self-reliance, and we've seen him work in the past. We just do our little magic formula. He's commissioned us to do this. We, we drive out the demons, and it goes. And all of a sudden now, it's not going out. And I think where we're all at, and maybe you're not there, but you will be, is everybody has something in life at some point that doesn't come out but anything but prayer. There are issues in your life, sins that are too big, problems that are too big, trials that are too big, challenges that are too big, some frustration, some wound, some bitterness, some hurt, some issue, somebody who's not a believer that you want to be a believer. There's some issue where this ain't coming out but anything but prayer. And what Jesus is now teaching the disciples is before all the times he would do a miracle and it was like you, you would have these statements like amazed, the crowd's amazed and everybody's in awe and you know, these wonderful statements, now it moves. And now what we see is Jesus is, dis is discipling his disciples and the main discipleship lesson, which is faith. And the way to measure your faith this morning is pop the hood to your soul, pull out the dipstick, and measure what's there. And the way you measure it is how much prayer is going on in your life. Are you praying? Because that's the way you measure to do the dipstick into the soul. 
If you are not praying, it's because you have your hands on the self-reliance rope. I'm too busy because I'm too important. I got too much going on. I've got other things that are more important or more pressing. I, I think I can do it myself. I've, I've done it myself in the past. I've been relying on self and, and doing this with the Lord. We, we work together. What do you mean? Just it can't come out but by prayer. And in reality, what Jesus is showing us is we have to rely on him. And I think that's hard sometimes for Presbyterians. And the reason is, if you're familiar with the, the doctrines of the church, we have this great distinction between, in our creedal statements, between Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, and Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5. And chapter 3 is all about the decrees of God. And what we learn in theology is God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. He's determined. He knows everything that's going to happen. And so then we think to ourselves, what difference does it make? Why should I pray? He's going he's to do it anyway. Because we forget chapter 5, which is the chapter on providence. And the chapter on providence says that God works out his decrees. How does he work them out providentially? Three adverbs. Freely, necessarily, contingently. A very good adverb to remember. He works out second causes contingently. Freely, necessarily, and contingently. Contingent on what? You have not because you ask not. He does work these things out by us being sharing the gospel. Well, he's going to save who he's going to save, but he uses people. He, he, he's also decreed your prayers. And so I think sometimes we get too hung up on that. I love what, what C.S. Lewis says about this. In, uh, he's writing a letter to a friend. Let me see if I can find this. And he says, he says, the efficacy of prayer is at any rate no more of a problem than the efficacy of all human acts. Meaning, if you say it's useless to pray because providence already knows what's best and will certainly do it, then why is it not equally useless to try to alter the course of events in any way whatsoever? You apply means in every other area of life. He provides your daily bread. Are you going to go home and get lunch? Are you going to get out lunch meat? Are you going to purchase food? Or are you just going to say, well, the Lord provides my daily bread? Of course you're going to act. You know innately that you should make lunch for yourself, but you know that he provides. In every area of life, he's ruling. So don't say, well, it's useless to pray because just as you put on your, your clothes in the morning and you go to work to make a living and he's the one who gives wealth and gives the ability to provide, yet he uses your abilities, he uses your prayers. And so... This passage that Jesus is teaching the disciples is, you've got to call on me. This, can, this kind cannot be driven out by anything, out by anything but prayer. And so it's a, it's a call for us to come back to the Lord and to grow in our prayer life in dependence upon him. Because apart from him, what can we really do? The Bible says nothing. But with him... We are told the prayer of a, of a righteous man has great power. Same word. Went to your disciples. They didn't have the strength to do it. 
But the one who's praying has great strength, great power as it is working. He uses the prayers of his people. I believe. Help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, it is true that we, we believe, and yet we struggle with unbelief. And it shows up, Lord, because we run to other things, other things to save us, other things to fix it. And Lord, we recognize afresh that only you can win these battles. The battle belongs to the Lord. And we ask, O oh God, that you would build our faith, strengthen us as we come to your table, that we would remember that you've done everything for us, that you are interceding even now on our behalf, using the prayers of your saints. Thank you. Meet us now as we come to your table. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.